0: Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monocle24 with me, Marcus Hippy. Over the next 60 minutes we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monocle24 with highlights from our studios here at Midori House and from around the world. This week...
1: Polaroid was such a juggernaut in this world that
0: you would have entire
1: companies making like single chemicals. That would allow it to make instant film so when the volume started going down and when Polaroid basically said it was going to go out of this a lot of these companies either shut down or switched their business which meant that we had this factory but we didn't have the ingredients needed to make the film
0: can Polaroid reinvent itself we'll have to see how that develops plus our New York correspondent Henry R. Sheridan heads to the courts to play tennis or tries to
2: anyway the courts are jam-packed and there are tons of people just waiting to play. My tennis partner arrives. We can't be bothered to wait for a court, so we head to a bar to drown our sorrows.
0: All that and much much more over the next hour here are the curator with me Marcus Hippi. We begin today's show with one story that has dominated the news the past seven days. South Africa's military has struggled this week to contain the ongoing civil unrest across the country. The demonstrations were initially ignited by the jailing of former President Jacob Zuma, but have since escalated into widespread violence and lawlessness. With many dead, shop vaccination centres and petrol stations were forced to shut their doors For Wednesday's edition of the briefing, I was joined on the line by David McKenzie, international correspondent for CNN based in Johannesburg. David began by explaining what was continuing to fuel the protests.
3: Just this morning, I was in Soweto, south of Johannesburg, and the utter devastation that we've witnessed over the last few days in this city Uh, in large parts of this province as well as in kwazulu natal province. Certainly, Marcus, it started, I think, it was sparked by anger over the imprisonment of former President Jacob Zuma for contempt for 15 months after he thumbed his nose to the court system for so many years. And now it seems it's about much more than that. A huge wealth gap in this country, as you know, and also, just people hungry, tired, dealing with months of COVID lockdowns uh, and unemployment, but total scenes of mayhem over the last few days that we've witnessed. Often the police nowhere to be seen, people totally ransacking the malls and shopping areas across Johannesburg and in KwaZulu Natal. Even now, as I speak, I'm watching live television as looting goes on in Durban. So it might have started with politics, and politics may be involved. But it's also just uh, shown that uh, despite those words of reassurance and a call for calm, uh, President Ramaphosa is certainly not in charge in at least a few parts of this country. The worst looting and violence that I've seen in uh, many decades of following South Africa, Marcus.
0: Tell us more about what what President Ramaphosa has done so far to try to contain these protests.
3: Well, two days ago, he had a national address where he said that uh, people would feel the might of the law. He called on the military to be deployed. And we have seen Marcus' military on the streets. Uh, There has been a standoff approach in many instances as people just went on and looted under the eyes of the police and later the military. But, you know, it's a very different prospect facing police with rubber bullets than it is uh, facing the military with automatic rifles. And so people are afraid and have, there has been more calm, I would say, in Johannesburg and this area Uh, just in the last few hours. We were out with the soldiers yesterday uh, and overnight, uh, and really just their presence has helped calm the situation. But I don't think this is over yet by any means. Ramaphosa uh, said that this shouldn't be what a democratic South Africa is about. He pointed specifically to the wealth gap in this country and the fact that, uh, you know, nearly 50% of people are unemployed and there's a massive youth unemployment in this country. That wealth divide, which has only grown in South Africa since the end of apartheid, is really being exposed in this mayhem and looting that we've seen uh, throughout the past few days, Marcus.
0: There have also been calls to implement at least a partial state of emergency. Do you have any update on that?
3: So far, they've resisted those calls, Marcus, and I think it's a very difficult political decision. You'll remember the days, the dark days of apartheid here in South Africa during the 80s, especially when there was a state of emergency installed, which was used roundly to crack down on people in many of the neighborhoods where this looting is taking place now in a modern democratic South Africa. Just being out on the streets, seeing military on the streets in places like Soweto, Alexandra, parts of uh, Durban, uh, many of them poorer areas of this country. is a very jarring moment for South Africa, which has struggled like many parts of the world through the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, but they had hoped that this was a, a time of hope as vaccines were starting to ramp up. Uh, but many of those vaccine sites are closed at this hour. Uh, so the feeling is really of uh, despair and shock amongst uh, many South Africans.
0: And is it too early to say yet how, how damaging this is for South Africa's vaccine rollout?
3: I think it will have an immediate impact, and it has already. The number of vaccines Mark has administered into arms has dropped precipitously in the last few days. We're in the midst of a very devastating third wave of this pandemic. And unlike some other parts of the world where vaccine rollout has helped stem the flow of this Delta variant wave, uh, that isn't the case here in South Africa. Uh, and so I think it will have an impact. Outside of the pandemic, just the the social impact on the economic impact is vast. Just a short time ago, I was in a mall, a shopping mall in Soweto. Now, you know, our listeners might not have any particular emotional attachment to, to malls, but these are the lifeblood of some of these areas that have been historically disadvantaged because of South Africa's brutal past everything is destroyed, Uh, banks, ATMs ripped out of the walls. Uh, We were at a pharmacy where the manager said to us, uh, she doesn't know what she will do. They were hoping to ramp up vaccinations there today or this week and she said she doesn't even know if she'll have a job. There was a truck placed next to the mall that had been looted uh, where people were buying bread because these are the only places for people to get basic goods close to where they live. Overnight at Maponya Mall, a pretty famous mall here in South Africa, and the pride of Soweto, uh, there were, I can only describe them as vigilante groups uh, and community police that were surrounding that mall to stop it from being looted. That's perhaps one of the only standing structures that isn't completely gutted this morning in South Africa in these areas that have seen this looting.
0: And in the middle of all that, how much has been heard from the members of Jacob Zuma's administration and the Zuma Foundation?
3: The Zuma Foundation, if anything, has been inciting this violence, I say, uh, Marcus, both from being quiet and on the sidelines and making what arguably could be calls uh, and uh, for people to get out there and take these actions. There's a lot of suspicion, as we talked about earlier, that this has Obviously, political motivations in the beginning, but also that there might be some political driving force in terms of specific places that should be targeted. It is worth noting that large parts of the country are calm and haven't seen this looting and violence. It's really been in KwaZulu Natal province, the uh, real anchor of Jacob Zuma's support, and here in Gauteng and Johannesburg, uh, where he also has supporters. It's spiraled out of control, but uh, Jacob Zuma's family have done little to stop this. Uh, his foundation has done little to stop this. And really, you had an absence absence of authority for several hours. The only people, other than a few police, trying to do their best to stop this uh, were journalists and uh, the people looting.
0: What do you think about what could end this unrest taking place in South Africa now? Is it down to President Ramaphosa? Does he need to do more?
3: It's a very difficult question. <clears throat> I think he, Marcus plays. Uh, he has to, he, he has to go in between, sounding forceful and not pushing too hard. As I mentioned earlier, you know, the sight of troops on the streets plays into his rivals' hands. The factionalism within the ruling ANC party is uh, a very problematic for Romaposa. It's not just Jacob Zuma, and we keep mentioning his name there are several senior politicians within the ANC that would be aligned with the former president and also face corruption allegations that would be uh, not necessarily cheering what's going on but being quiet on the sidelines because the kind of chaos we're seeing that uh, is being seen across the world is very bad for Jacob Zuma not just the country Uh, and that political fallout uh, will weaken his hand though today this morning there have been a sense of calm, at least where I am standing and where we've been in Johannesburg. There is still looting going on near Durban. The next stage of this will be, if it calms down, what will the be reaction be? Uh, should Jacob Zuma stay in prison after his last ditch court attempt to get him out? Uh, if that doesn't succeed, we might see a blow up again. But I think it's important to stress one more time, Marcus, that this isn't just about politics. This is about the fact that the promise of a democratic South Africa for many millions of South Africans hasn't been met. People are hungry. They're tired. They've lived through COVID, many of them unemployed if they weren't already. And there's just this frustration boiling over at that wealth gap in this country.
0: David Mackenzie, international correspondent for CNN, speaking to me for Wednesday's edition of The Briefing. Well, for Thursday's edition of The Globalist, Monocle's Georgina Godwin was joined by the journalist Ferial Hafidji, also on the line from Johannesburg.
4: Do you think that this could be a counterintelligence operation against a sitting government, as posited in, in the South African paper The Daily Maverick?
5: Well, I had um, we carefully studied it before you call something insurrectionary. But I think after receiving very high level analysis and also studying what's happening, it's quite clear that that's what the outcome is now is to um, topple the president. But it's not topple it in the sense of a coup, it's to replace one faction by another in the governing party and so then take the presidency because that's the uh, system we run here.
4: So basically, in the emergency, of an ethno-nationalist movement from the right—I mean, counter-revolutionary, as we saw with Bolsonaro in Brazil or, or Modi of India.
5: I think that's a, that's a fair characterization. Um, I'm not sure whether it's only ethnic, although there is certainly the stoking of, of ethnic identities and tensions. But really, this is—it's political, and it's more about the arrangement of what we call state capture elites, people who've been extracting from the state for at least a decade now, but have been stopped in their tracks by the grand corruption inquiry, which you and I have spoken about before. Mm. So do you think that a Zulu nationalist project could gain support
4: beyond KwaZulu-Natal?
5: No, I think that kind of project only has traction in KwaZulu-Natal. Wise minds were trying to uh, stamp out any Conflagrations which may occur between, for example, Indian and African people in KwaZulu-Natal. But beyond that, it's never been found to have caught a light, except in near Johannesburg, where I live. And that's because of the high number of hostels containing migrant workers who come from that province.
4: So, I mean, previously, when there has been violence and political upheaval in South Africa, it's gone hand in hand with xenophobia. And as you talk about those migrants, uh, foreigners from other African countries have been attacked. Is that the case here?
5: It feels the same. Many of the same areas where foreign nationals do have shops. I think that we're so busy putting out the flames and trying to understand what's happening that there's an undercurrent story that I've been seeing on social media where. Quite a number of the people who have died are Somalian shopkeepers and that's something that I want to take a bigger look at over Mm. the next couple of days. Now, we've also heard of citizen
4: fight back, communities arming themselves. Can you corroborate that?
5: So, for example, my brother lives in Durban and he's somebody who's never ever been on night patrols, but he's doing that now. They're not armed. Um, Some of the community groups are heavily armed, as we've seen, really heavily. And we've started to look at who's arming them and how they've gotten hold of some of those arms. Some of what's seen on on TV or on social media is actually paintball guns. So I think there's a lot of investigative work to be done. But really, it's only those groupings that have kept those communities safe safe um, in the past few days because the police failed miserably now has
4: there been any reaction from the Zuma camp I mean I saw one extraordinary tweet from his son urging people to loot responsibly (laughs)
5: <laughs> yeah, no. His son, uh, the very telegenic uh, Duduzani Zuma, um, really has launched a campaign because he does believe, I think, fueled by his popularity on social media, that he can be another Zuma president in, in the country. I spent some days looking at that, and people are saying, really, he's, he's smoking his socks. That's, that's not going to happen. But from that camp, um, if you know who they are, they have been sending out the most incendiary um, social media using um, using a medium that's now the key form of communication in South Africa. Um, I got some stats yesterday which shows most south africans communicate by whatsapp now and Mm. i think that's where the organizing is happening
4: Uh, now as we know the south african national defense forces have deployed twenty-five thousand more soldiers are on the streets now who are the army loyal to i mean if the bottom line here is that this is some kind of insurrection organized perhaps by counterintelligence operatives which way will the army go
5: well, I, I don't think that you you can say I've been watching people say they're a non-partisan force. We've never, ever seen them come down on the side of any specific faction of the governing party. Um, but what I do think is worth thinking about is that what you saw with the police in KwaZulu-Natal is, to my mind, definite partisanship turning a blind eye to what was happening. Now, that may be because uh, people are scared because they come from communities need to return to those same communities where the looting was being organised or otherwise they are acting in a partisan fashion. So finally,
4: Farrell, is this a tipping point for the country? Are we going to see Ramaphosa deposed, the ANC imploding?
5: I certainly hope not. I think what you're seeing at the moment, Georgina, is a, a gathering of the good. So the, the churches, a multi-party force being developed, uh, many more boots on the ground. And what has been most heartening for me in a, in a very scary and dark time is being ordinary citizens also using technology platforms to say not in our name so they are cleaning up after the looters like you said they are protecting their own communities and hopefully that can be built in a national force that pushes back against a very difficult moment for our country
0: that was ferial Hafaji speaking to monocles George and godwin for thursday's edition of the globalist Staying with The Globalist for our next highlight, Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, met with Joe Biden in Washington this week. It was her first visit to the White House since President Biden took office. The meeting came ahead of her retirement in September after almost 16 years at the helm. And Biden is the fourth U.S. president she has met. Chris Chair McMonagle's news editor covered many of her previous trips and here on On the eve of their meeting, he looked back on German-U.S. interactions.
6: Laura and I are thrilled to uh, uh, welcome the Chancellor and Professor Sauer here to our place. Uh, In Texas, when you uh, invite somebody to your home, uh, it's an expression of warmth and respect. And um, that's how I feel about Chancellor Merkel. So, Madam Chancellor, welcome. We're looking forward to having constructive talks as well as um,
4: a chance to
7: relax and visit. It really is incredible in the context of a democracy to take a moment and reflect on the sheer amount of time that Angela Merkel has dominated the world stage and how many different types of US president have come and gone in the meantime. Think relations under Trump were bad? It's worth remembering that Merkel came into office in November 2005, soon after the US-led war in Iraq, which was overwhelmingly opposed by the German public and which her predecessor, Gerhard Schröder, had refused to back. On a personal level, Merkel's longevity is equally astonishing. My own journalistic career, which started with the German news agency DPA in Washington back in 2006, has been a roller coaster of reckoning with how to explain the vagaries of many a U.S. president to a foreign audience, but I've known no other German chancellor. Merkel's first visit to the United States was back in January 2006, during George W. Bush's second term. Over her 16 years as chancellor, she would visit the U.S. more than any country other than Belgium and France. Keeping the transatlantic relationship chugging along during good times, and the not-so-good ones.
5: The United States has been treated very, very unfairly by many countries over the years, and that's going to stop. But I'm not an isolationist. I'm a free trader, but I'm also a fair trader. Uh, Germany's done very well in its uh, trade deals with the United States, and I give them credit for it.
7: And yet it's a testament to her rather unique diplomatic abilities. A frank style, unwavering in her values, but yet somehow pragmatic in her relationships and willing to deal on a level footing, with even those leaders she might find personally odious, that's meant she had a decent relationship with just about every U.S. president, Republican or Democrat. Even Donald Trump launched far fewer personal attacks at Merkel than he did at nearly any other world leader. Instead, he'd often lob criticism at Germany without mentioning Merkel by name. Merkel's closest relationship? That, unsurprisingly, was with Barack Obama. Good evening. Guten Abend.
3: Uh, Michelle and I are honored uh, to welcome you as we host Chancellor Merkel, Professor Zoa, and the German delegation for the first official visit and state dinner for a European leader during my presidency.
7: Their relationship spanned half of Merkel's time in office, and not only that, but the two leaders had perhaps the most similar views of multilateralism and approach to global diplomacy. And it was Obama who later in his presidency awarded Merkel America's highest civilian honor, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, affording Merkel the chance to offer a few rare words of gratitude in English.
8: Neither the chains of dictatorship, nor the fetters of oppression, can keep down the forces of freedom for long. This is my firm conviction that shall continue to guide me. In this, the Presidential Medal of Freedom shall serve to spur me on and to encourage me. Mr. President, thank you for honoring me with this prestigious award.
7: That relationship with Obama should bode well for what is almost certain to be her final trip to Washington and meeting today with Joe Biden. The two leaders know each other well from Biden's time as vice president. Germany's not just central to our relationship with Europe. Quite frankly, it's central to our entire global agenda. That was Biden back in 2011. And yet it's fair to say that the US-German relationship today remains far more fractious than the warm words we can expect from the two leaders later today will suggest. There are disagreements on a host of issues, ranging from trade to defense spending, Russia to China. And while Merkel may have always valued personal relationships, the many leaders that came and went during her tenure have also prompted her to look beyond them. During Trump's tenure, she made pointed references that the world could no longer rely on the United States to guarantee the world order. <laughs> völlig verlassen konnten. Die sind ein Stück vorbei. Das habe ich in den letzten Tagen erlebt. Comments like these suggest that Merkel was able to look past any one US president. Her personal lesson of Trump's tenure, along with many German politicians, was that Europe had to guarantee its own security even in a world after Trump had left office. Expect Biden to flip the script and quiz Merkel on how Germany will face up to its global role and responsibilities. Once she leaves, I, for one, will be looking forward to explaining the vagaries of the next German chancellor to Americans as well.
0: Chris news editor there. Staying with U.S. international relations next but with a design twist as our next highlight comes from this week's episode of Monocle on Design. The architect Jane Smith advises the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Overseas Buildings Operations or OBO and has designed the interiors for numerous U.S. embassies and consulates including Mexico City, Chiang Mai and Ankara. monocle Nickman is recently caught up with Jane to discuss the importance of the role and the balance of championing US design whilst also being sensitive to local
9: contexts. Architecture is the visual. There's much that people can say and have different feelings about whether it's the US or any country that we get through many different ways. But architecture is a visual, it's a place, and I think that it can either positively or negatively reinforce what people think of a country and our hope is to do architecture that reinforces the positive and maybe even builds the positive through this place that we're creating
10: I mean and is, is that is that I guess part of the foreign policy objectives of the OBO and and if so how does how does design play into that as well
9: oh it's very very important and the and the current leadership cares very much about design and design across a lot of different Aspects, design in terms of long-term maintainability of uh, the embassy compounds, sustainable practices, use of local and indigenous materials, understanding of cultural differences that should be reflected in not only the, the look of the architecture, but also in some of the functionality, what the habits are of the local people. But we get that from the top down. Design excellence at a broad level, is extremely important. And the people that work within OBO, they themselves are professional. They're professional architects and engineers and designers who have chosen to do this work. But they are also colleagues of ours, and we speak with each other as colleagues. There's a lot of respect between the actual employees of OBO and the consultants that are brought in to do the work.
10: I mean, you, you talk there also about, you know, design coming from the top down and how, I guess, for, for, for want of a better expression, the top levels of government dictate architectural foreign policy. What, what role do you think politicians play in, you know, I guess, shaping how a nation is represented architecturally? And I guess as well, you know, how much of that should also be left for designers to interpret their own culture and put their own uh, their own spin on it?
9: You used, Nick, the word dictate, and I don't feel that within the design aspects we feel dictated to in the least bit. I believe in all good leadership that from the top set strategy direction holds the money. Uh, I think the Congress determines what the budgets are for OBO, and they also decide who the top leadership will be. They also decide who the ambassadors will be, and with the president, I'm not sure exactly how that part works, but between the Congress and President, the Ambassadors and the Head of Executive Director of OBO are set, and then the team is filled in below that. So there's a budget and there's a head, but the actual strategy, in the seven to eight years that I've been there, I've been extremely impressed by the quality and level of architects and designers that have been selected by OBO to do this work and really what it's about is it's about best practice, and it's about, again, combining local with U.S. design. And I feel that, like strong leadership in any organization, like I try to do in my organization, set the high-level direction and count on the people to manage the day-to-day business, and I think that that's what happens at OBO. I think the politicians, yes, they're at the top, but they're not involved in the day-to-day and should not be making the decisions about what the architecture probably is. I think that there are people who are more qualified to do that.
10: And I guess just, just finally, I want to jump from that to a significant and, and quite controversial event last year and, and, and Trump's ambition to make federal buildings beautiful again, a program, I guess, where he wanted to have any new federal buildings designed in, in the classical style. If that move had have been successful, how would that have affected US government buildings overseas and, and I guess the OBO more broadly?
9: I think that if it had happened in its full, specifically the, the way it was discussed, that would have been difficult. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And there was a time that the embassies basically looked more like concrete bunkers. They were very much particular about the security. And it's always about the security. That's the number one thing that everyone designs towards is high levels of of security and safety. But what I believe is that What it would have done is potentially change the practice that is happening now, which is really, again, I personally feel is a great practice, that the architects that are thinking today, thinking of ways of designing, using things that have come out of a lot of thought, and represent who we are as a nation and and as designers today, I'm very much a believer in that kind of architecture. I appreciate wonderful classic architecture that's classic architecture of the time and period. But there might be some architects that are selected by the OBO that are more classicists in their design, and that's great too. I think that there's room for lots of different kinds of design of embassies, that they don't need to be cookie-cutter stamped designs, and I think that that's quite exciting right now.
0: The architect Jane Smith in conversation with our very own Nick Manis for this week's edition of Monocle on Design. Staying stateside for our next highlight, as it's time for our letter from New York City, this week our correspondent Henry Sheridan plays tennis all tries to anyway.
2: I arrive at the tennis courts. It's 6pm, prime tennis time. But it's also a cloudy day, with a forecast of possible thunderstorms. That might be enough to put off players less dedicated than ourselves. So I've allowed myself to hope that at least one court will be available. But no, the courts are jam-packed and there are tons of people just waiting to play. My tennis partner arrives. We can't be bothered to wait for a court, so we head to a bar to drown our sorrows. Wearing tennis shoes, and with the handles of our rackets sticking out of our rucksacks, we walk to a bar that my partner has chosen. It's an unusual one. It's a completely normal bar, except half of it is a bowling alley. And the interior is very dimly lit. I go to order. The bartender eyes up the tennis racket handle sticking out of my rucksack and the tube of tennis balls I'm carrying in the mesh pocket on the side of the bag. ''You do realise we've got a bowling alley, not a tennis court,'' she says. ''I know what it is,'' I reply. ''We were meant to play tennis, but all of the courts were full.'' ''OK, whatever,'' says the bartender, handing me two beers. As I pass one to my friend, he points across to the room. ''Look,'' he says, ''a pool table.'' I do look and I see that there is in fact a pool table... I'm pleased for the opportunity to get some exercise after all. The table is currently occupied by a young couple, a man and a woman. The man is shooting, so I approach the woman. Excuse me, I say, may we play a game after you? She looks me up and down. You seem to be confused, she says, this is a pool table not a tennis court. I understand that, I say. I don't want to play tennis. I want to play pool. You want to play pool, do you? She replies. Well, in that case, this must be your cue. She yanks my racket out of my rucksack by its handle. And these must be your special pool balls. She snatches my tube of tennis balls out of the mesh side pocket of my rucksack and empties them onto the pool table. Then... To my horror, she starts trying to pot my tennis balls using the racket as a cue. She gets angry when the balls don't fit in the pockets. These pool balls don't even fit in the pockets, she shouts at me. That's because they're not pool balls, I try to explain. They're tennis balls. Agitated, I gather my tennis balls and put them back in the tube. Then I seize my racket and run into the bowling alley section next door. It's an enormous relief to be out of the bar area. Although, like the bar, the bowling alley seems to be very dimly lit. Well, I think to myself, while I'm here, why not get in a frame or two? See if I can't work up a sweat. I approach the man behind the counter. One game of bowling, please, I say to him. No problem, buddy. What's your shoe size? He says. While I'm putting on my rental shoes, he walks over and picks up my tennis balls, which I've set down on the bench next to me. I see you've brought in your own bowling balls, he says. That's pretty cool. People used to bring in their own balls all the time when I worked upstate, but not so much down here in the city. Although I have to say, he went on, cradling my balls, I haven't seen many like this before. That's because they're tennis balls, I reply, not bowling balls. Well, before I let you bowl, he says, not seeming to hear me, I'm going to have to check their compatibility with this facility's ball return mechanism. Before I can stop him, he strolls towards an empty lane and starts lobbing my tennis balls at the pins. They're pretty light, he shouts back at me, and they don't have any finger holes. I'm surprised and impressed by how many pins he's able to knock down with the tennis balls. There's a horrible, metallic grinding sound. I can see sparks and smoke coming from behind the pins. ''No!'' shouts the attendant. ''They're choking up the ball return mechanism.'' Suddenly, he's running as fast as he can down the lane. At the halfway point, he dives forward and slides the rest of the way on his tummy like an emperor penguin on the ice. My ball return mechanism, my ball return mechanism, he screams as he slides. He hits the pins, it's a strike, and disappears into the inferno behind them. I look up and notice that all the other bowlers have stopped their games and are staring at me. I try to tell him, I appeal to them, they're tennis balls, they're not meant for ten pin bowling. The other bowlers just stare back in stony silence. It seems I've outstayed my welcome. I'm beginning to walk out when I feel something strike me on the back of the head. I turn around and see a tennis ball bouncing at my feet. I look into the mouth of the ball return unit, and as I do so, it shoots two more tennis balls at me. They hit me in the head, hard. The room seems to be so bright now. I'm certain I've sustained brain damage, then I feel a crunch underfoot. It's my sunglasses, knocked off my head, which I'd apparently been wearing since we entered the bar.
0: Monocle's New York correspondent, Henry Reece Sheridan, therefore Thursday's edition of The Monocle Daily. Still to come here on the curator, we head to the south of England to learn about an experiment being carried out to see which tree offers the best protection against climate change. We meet the chairman of Polaroid to hear how the company is hoping to reinvent itself, and a top chef shares a favourite recipe. Stay tuned.
3: UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries.
0: Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today.
11: To find out how we could help you,
0: contact us at ubs.com. You are with The Curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monocle24, and I am Marcus Hippip. We have all been warned that hotter summers and wetter winters are on the way. In 80 years, top temperatures in London could feel more like Milan's, and the effects of climate change will be felt keenly in our cities with heat, flooding and more pollution. An experiment is being carried out at one of the world's leading plant research centres, the Royal Horticultural Society in Wisley in the south of England, for 5 years they'll monitor dust Of trees to see which offer the best protection against climate change. For this week's edition of Tall Stories, Emma Nelson went along to find out the importance of cultivating our gardens.
8: A tree is a city's secret weapon. It improves our mental health, it pushes up property prices, it also absorbs pollution, cools hot streets. And sucks up flood water. So, could the right tree in the right place turn our urban back gardens into the front line in the fight against climate change? Well, in order to find out, we have to venture out of the city and head south to the Royal Horticultural Society's Research Centre. Liz Larson has commandeered a large patch of ground behind the Society's greenhouses and she's conducting an experiment.
12: Here you can see 60 trees, which are up to four metres and 10 different species all set out in a big outdoor experiment
8: what's the experiment all about
12: these experiments are looking at different species and how they can combat different local environmental concerns in the urban cities so we're focusing on regulating services which includes flooding and excessive heating in the urban area and pollution and also carbon sequestration so all of these things are ecosystem services that
8: trees provide. So, simply put, what is the three or four big things that a city should be worried about when it comes to climate?
12: When it comes to climate, is excess heating, flooding, pollution, which is not directly climate change, but it will be worsened, and the lack of biodiversity.
8: What is the purpose of this experiment? What are you trying to work out?
12: What we're trying to work out is that we're looking at different species, how One species can be better at delivering one service than another species. So for instance, we want to be able to provide gardeners with an information of what they're planting in their garden can actually make a difference compared to other species. So we're comparing very vast different species here. They have very different characteristics, so both from their canopy sizes, to the leaf area, leaf shape, colour. We're trying to spread it out as much as possible so we can detect which traits are actually good for these different services, and then hopefully we can provide this information at the end of the experiment.
8: So what kind of trees have we got here? So we have
12: 10 different species, and I have both deciduous and evergreen, broadleaf and conifers. In this experiment, I have, starting first here, I have a calorie pear, I have a plumleaf hawthorn, I have a rowan, I have a magnolia, I have a blue spruce, Italian cypress, I have an apple tree, and then you have something that doesn't look so well at the moment. It's a redwood tree, and then we have a common holly and a cherry.
8: The handsome lines of trees in tubs are instantly recognisable from a British urban back garden, but their bases are smothered in wires and tubes, measuring every raindrop every sunray, and how each species responds.
12: Evergreen can capture both pollution and rainwater for excessive flooding. It can shade and cool the air, so both for thermal comfort for humans and avoid excessive heating, which you get when you have a lot of pavement. It can create habitats both in summer and winter.
8: And what's quite nice is you have things like pear trees and apple trees, which are beautiful things to have anywhere in your garden. So have you deliberately chosen things which are wonderful to look at and to enjoy as well as useful?
12: Yes. Well, I think when you put together 10 different species of any trees, you're going to have a bit of a wow effect because the canopies are so different. You're just going to think, wow, they're really beautiful. But when you look individually, you can also see that particularly, I think, the apple tree tree, we know is a very popular species and the same with the pear so we definitely wanted to choose also trees that people would want to
8: have in their garden how excited are you about your project it's a long-term project but it must be really nice to know that one day you might do a bit of good
12: I'm very excited by the opportunity of having such a large-scale experiment because it's not common, because you can see the resources it takes. I'm going to describe it again, like the biggest trees are four meters tall. They're planted in pots that are 130 liters. And I'm able to have trees between the age of four and five-year-old. So they're not small seedlings, they're actually quite big. And I have been able to have 60 of them outdoor space.
8: How much real difference do you think that planting different trees in different places will make to London and to other cities?
12: Well, for instance, in the UK, there isn't that much research on private gardens and forest cover. So if we can get a real difference and we can get the message out there to gardeners who are willing to plant consciously or make informed choices.
8: Liz wants city planners and developers to take trees more seriously – A focus on building, building, building may solve some problems, but a tree does much more than prettify.
12: In different aspects, trees can actually help in these environmental concerns. It will be easier to both city planners but also gardeners to have trees in their gardens because they will always be in competition with other buildings or other stuff that needs space in a city. And so if we can monitor and quantify the difference that they do make, we can have a much better case for trees in the city because we know they're so important, but there has to be quantified argument, I think, for it to be prioritised. It is harder to go into a city environment where it hasn't been made room for from the beginning and then plant green infrastructure, you know? It's much better to do that from the very beginning and make space in new developments and also let gardeners know that your tree is not just shading for your sun It's also it's providing these services so maybe you want to maintain it but maybe you want to choose a smaller species so you have that in mind and if you make an informed choice you're more likely to have that tree stay put in the ground and not felled.
8: In five years we should know which trees are best suited to flooded areas, which are the best storers of carbon dioxide, which offer the best shade for scorching paving stones. Then city dwellers will know we're doing our bit to fight climate change from the comfort of our back gardens.
0: Monocle's Emma Nelson, therefore the latest instalment of Tall Stories. You are with the Curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monocle 24. Polaroid is a brand and name we know for one thing instant photography. The iconic white frames around Polaroid prints captured important and fun moments for people right around the world over generations but following years of debt the original Polaroid corporation filed for bankruptcy in 2001 and the last factory to make its film in the Netherlands closed in 2008. This week on monocle 24th, The Ultra- Entrepreneurs host Daniel Bage spoke to Oscar Smolokowski, Polaroid's chairman, who was also part of a startup called The Impossible Project, which spent over a decade rebuilding the brand.
1: I Actually, I think I'm more of a lover of products and physical products and product design than I am of photography itself. I love photography as well, but I think it definitely wasn't the main reason or the primary reason I actually got into the project. Polaroid is a very, very old company, right? It started in 1937. But the journey that I think is the most relevant for this conversation is what happened after 2008, which was the year that Polaroid, after a bunch of bankruptcies, basically split into a couple of parts. And one of the parts was the old Polaroid factory in Holland, in Enschede, And another part was the actual brand and a company that was running the brand. My journey started with the factory. So that's where Impossible Project came in. That's where a couple of crazy guys basically banded together and saved the last Polaroid film factory. And that became the Impossible Project. And that was Florian Kaps and a bunch of guys in the factory who kind of pulled together and decided to try and save instant film. And that was like 2009 when they really got started. And my journey started a couple of years later in 2012 at the Impossible Project, which is kind of the starting point of our, our little company here that grew up and now is pulled back to being Polaroid again.
6: Well, just to walk back a little bit there, talk to us about the state this factory was in and what the actual makeup of the company there for you to walk in, to save, to take over. Obviously, as you mentioned, the Impossible Project existed before you came along and, and joined that mission. Just talk to us about what the actual aim was and what they were trying to save.
1: It was the last factory capable of producing analog integral instant film You know, Polaroid made the decision at some point that that wasn't the future, that digital photography was more important and different mediums were more important. So they basically were like selling off parts and stuff like that. So the factory was it was basically the day before it was supposed to be demolished. So the kind of story goes. Florian convinced the guys not to not to demolish it and actually to to sell it to him. But I think this is this is the fun part where where the name comes from. The guys who were selling him the factory, the old Polaroid crew, was basically telling him, look, you can't really make Polaroid film in here. All the supply chain is gone. You have to reinvent the supply chain from scratch. And that's not really possible because over the last couple of years, all the suppliers basically went, went out of business or they moved their business to, to something else. I mean, Polaroid was such a juggernaut in this world that you would have entire companies making like single chemicals that would allow it to make instant film. So when the volume started going down and when Polaroid basically said it was gonna go out of this, a lot of these companies either shut down or switched their business, which meant that we had this factory, but we didn't have the ingredients needed to make the film. So the factory itself was in not the best, but not the worst state in terms of being able to kind of make the final steps and put the film together and put the little parts that comprise film together. But the bigger problem was there was nothing, no ingredients to kind of, no raw materials and chemicals to feed the machines to actually make the film. So it was really starting from scratch.
6: Well, let's talk then about the growth in this instant market for you. Obviously you have gone on to develop a, a range of new cameras, printers. There are many ways to connect people to the creation of a portrait, as you say, a picture that can be in your hands instantly. So. Where is the growth for you here, and, and how do you sort of drive that brand forward? We've been
1: growing a lot in the core, right? Like, we're kind of rebuilding. I mean, I think for context, Polaroid used to sell so much instant film, I mean, we're talking like 100 million film packs a year. That was kind of roughly Polaroid size, and we're scratching the surface of that. I mean, we're a couple million packs a year growing and getting to some decent numbers, but I would say it's much, much smaller for context. So we've seen really, really, really good growth pretty much every year since we started, really, since I joined in 2012, every year was a big step forward. And the market is growing. But I think it's still important to contextualize that it it, it is a bit smaller than it was on some levels. When you take the whole instant photography pie into consideration for consumers, it's actually a little bit bigger than it used to be. Because I think the thing that people don't realize is that instant photography was a very important tool for business photography, you know, Mm -hmm. all the way from fashion designers and 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 fashion models using them for you know literally like then up to this day people call it polaroid photos when you talk about these kinds of photos that represent models but also like insurance companies police departments firefighters like they would take pictures of the scene with polaroid and that was a huge huge business and all of that is gone obviously cuz digital is much better at it so what we're left with is just the consumer business which was only like half of Polaroid's business. So in that context, we're actually much closer to, I mean, we're still far away, but we're much closer to getting up to, to those numbers. And the whole instant photography market is actually slightly bigger than it used to be in the, in the nineties and in the peak.
6: Just talk to me, Oscar, a little bit about what you have in the works these days. Obviously, the film, the production of that, the physical cameras, and, and the actual product is very important for a brand such as Polaroid. But talk to me just a little bit about your vision of growth and what is most important there as far as, as marketing or reaching new potential consumers.
1: So we just launched this new format for the first time. So we invented a, a new format or, or reinvented it. So it's a basically, we've figured out a way to make the smallest instant analog camera ever, with the Polaroid Go. So that's been something that we're super excited about. We just launched it this year. It's just kind of rolling out in the world and it's doing, it's doing great and we're seeing it everywhere. So it's basically the first time you can take one of our cameras and just put it in your hoodie pocket and just go around with it. And it's, it's been really great to use it personally and to just see it out in the world as well. So really excited about that. We're working on a bunch of new cameras over the next couple of years. And then we've got a bunch of stuff that I can't talk about that I'm really excited about to launch next year as well. What I can say is that, you know, we're starting to take the cameras more and more seriously. I think the first years were really characterized by kind of getting the basics right, getting people like kind of the basic tools to take instant photos. And we're starting to explore things around giving people more control and more tools around the craft of, of photography and instant photography.
0: Oskar Smolokowski, the chairman of Polaroid, speaking to Monocle's Daniel Bage. You can hear the full interview on this week's episode of The Entrepreneurs. Just head to our website, monocle.com forward slash radio. And finally on today's show, a highlight from my show, Food Neighbourhoods. For the latest episode, we meet Jessica Roswell, the head chef of Casa Maria Luigia, Massimo Potura's elegant country hotel in Modena. Here, Jessica shares a recipe for a sumptuous weekend brunch dish.
11: Hello, my name is Jessica Roswell. I am the head chef at Casa Maria Luigia. I have been living in Italy and working for Massimo Bottura for the last eight years, first at Osteria Francescana and here at Casa Maria Luigia since May of 2019. So today I'm really excited to present to you a summertime dish that we serve here at Casa Maria Luigia for our weekend brunch. It's our Tola Dolza branch. Tola Dolza is Modenese dialect for take it easy because we just want you to come here, sit in the Modenese countryside, enjoy the flowers, smell the smell of the barbecue and listen to amazing live music. That's what it is. And this dish is called short ribs forever inspired by barbecue, inspired by the territory, inspired by our gardens, and inspired also by our world travels, we try and incorporate lots of different flavors into this dish. First, we take a Piemontese beef short rib. Uh, This not only gets marinated for 24 hours, but then it goes on our smoker, and we do this for two days. We use wood that comes from Vignola. Uh, Vignola is a small town here in Emilia-Romagna, world-renowned for their cherries. And we use that dry cherry wood to add sweetness uh, to our meat and that beautiful smoky flavor. After that point, this meat gets covered with flowers. Sweet, bitter, aromatic flowers that we pick from our property here at Maria Luigia. It gets hidden in camouflage and placed on top of a nice sour horseradish cream. Uh, These are all of the different tangy flavors that are going to help bring everything out and lighten up the dish. So, we don't stop there. Of course, we're smoking this meat for two days, and so we have a really deep flavor. But, we want to pay homage, tribute to some of the pioneers of modern day barbecue, so we've made a sauce using vinegars that we've produced here at Casa Maria Luilla, using elderflowers that we pick in the spring, and mustard seeds, we're able to pay tribute to Carolina-style barbecue. And then using the cherries from Vignola, concentrating them down and extracting their natural flavors, we're able to get sweetness into the sauce as well. Uh, And that's paying tribute, of course, to the Texas-style barbecue. So again, keeping our minds open and traveling wherever we can in this dish. So what gets served on the side of this dish? Tigella. Tigella is the word of a Modenese bread that's eaten typically here with cold cuts, so with moradella or prosciutto. It's pressed in a flower shaped mold that's been set over the fire. Except for, of course, because we're traveling around with our inspiration, we're not going to make the traditional recipe. Instead, we're pouring a classic pancake batter into the Tigella mold to stamp it with the flour, to remind people that we're all coming from all over the world, but we find each other here in Modena. So what would I drink with this dish? Why not a nice cocktail? Why not a gin tonic with something floral in it? Why not add some elderflower liqueur, some rose petals inside? Go for the floral and the herbaceous and it's gonna pair up perfectly.
0: Top chef Jessica Rossville there. And that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by Sam Impian, presented by me, Markus Hippie. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programmes here on Monocle24. And thanks for listening.